postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. A world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising a white flag and saying, Ah! It's all the secular people's fault and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic campaign. How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism Redesigned. Hey everyone, it's Pastor Marcus here and I want to welcome you to another episode of the Story Church Podcast. Super stoked uh, to be here with you guys this week. Uh, However, um, I don't actually have any new content for you guys this week. Uh, It has been, you know, uh, pretty busy with uh, all the things that are ebbing and flowing with COVID-19 and the... uh, Uh, changes that are coming down from the government as far as restrictions go. And uh, having three churches and managing all of the updates and changes and reopenings and, you know, all that crazy stuff, uh, I've just been uh, a bit bit swamped. And so uh, as far as the, you know, having the extra time to kind of create new content, it's been a bit hard. It's been a bit hard recently. Uh, So what I thought I would do this week is I thought I would share... Uh, an interview or a conversation that I had with Pastor Eddie Hippolyte. Now, we've had Eddie Hippolyte on the podcast before a long time ago. If you guys think back, um, I I can't exactly remember the uh, title of the episode, but if you go through the podcast archives, you will find where Eddie Hippolyte came on the the show, and uh, we had an amazing conversation, and, and, you know, if you've ever heard Eddie before, the guy really, really, really makes you think. He says some super profound stuff. Um, so anyways, so what happened last week was uh, Eddie invited me on um, on his Instagram live to have a conversation on imperialism, empire, and spiritual resistance. And we talked about social justice and uh, the place of the church in that conversation. And uh, and so I thought, you know, I don't have anything new that I've sort of made uh, to, to share this week. And so maybe I'll share that. But then it was a little bit awkward because, you know, you kind of feel like, uh, is it, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Is it is it, is it pretentious to share? <laughs> Uh, to share uh, an interview that someone did with me on my own podcast. Isn't that kind of weird? Um, so I don't know. You know what, guys? Maybe it is kind of weird. But um, either way, I uh, I just want to go ahead and take take the time to share my weird, um, um, awkward uh, <laughs> um, interview with, with Eddie. Well, the interview itself isn't isn't weird or awkward, but uh, it's, it's not very often. I think only one time in uh, one other time. I've actually shared a podcast here in in this podcast, in the Story Church podcast, that was an interview from another podcast, and I got permission from those guys. And that was uh, when I had the interview with DMing Truth and Tech. Um, and so, anyways, anyways, I'm just rambling now, guys. I'm just rambling. We had this conversation, and it was super interesting um, conversation to have with Eddie because he asked some really profound questions about imperialism, empire, and spiritual resistance. And and kind of the thing that revolved around the conversation was um, what does it look like for people, you know, for the church to be involved in this discussion? And um, kind of my angle that I wanted to get across, and uh, maybe I got it across, I don't know, I guess you'll find out in a few minutes, um, is that, you know, we want the church to be involved in this conversation and the church needs to be involved in this conversation because 
things like social justice, um, they are ideas that are driven by a worldview. And, and I've have been having these conversations on social media a lot lately because there's a lot of people in the church who are saying Christians need to stay away from social justice because social justice is linked to Marxism and it's linked to identity politics um, and it's linked to cancel culture and it's, you know, it's linked to all these riots and this violence and, uh, you know, we are, we are Christians and we should have nothing to do with that. Um, and, and I want to just be really clear that I, I agree. Like, I, I don't think vindictive models of justice are compatible with the gospel. However, think of it this way. Social justice is kind of like an arrow, right? It's an arrow. And the, the direction that this arrow flies is is going to be based you know the 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 way it's aimed rather how how you aim this arrow um and and how you launch this arrow into the culture is is based on a worldview and so the worldview is kind of like your bow right so you got your arrow which is social justice but the way in which you you launch it into the culture is your bow and there are lots of different bows right now that are launching this arrow and so, for example, there are people who are launching the arrow of social justice into the culture and they're launching it with a Marxist bow. Absolutely. Like, I'm not going to deny that. There's people who are launching it with a fanatical leftist bow with, um, you know, identity politics and, you know, vindictive models of, of justice. It's definitely happening. But the tragedy is, and, and this is where I, I hope to inspire you guys through this conversation with Eddie, is that the tragedy is that as a church, instead of creating a bow that we use to launch this arrow into the culture, we're just criticizing the arrow. And it's like, no, that's, you know, how, when has that ever done us any good? When has anything redemptive ever come from us standing on the edge of cultural conversations and just criticizing it? You know, and, and you see this in Adventism all the time. Hey, what's the new thing going on? Oh, social justice. Okay, well, let's find a way to link it to the Pope and secret societies. And then we can make some DVDs and make a lot of money and freak people out. And, you know, it's like what redemptive value has ever come of that? Like nothing, right? Uh, and so my invitation is let's develop a bow, right? Let's take a look at our biblical worldview, the sanctuary, the atonement, the judgment, um, the prophetic narrative, and let's engineer, let's construct a bow through which we can launch this arrow of social justice into the cultural conversation with themes like redemption and oneness and harmony. Um, and now in this conversation with Eddie, I don't necessarily iron out all the wrinkles in that because I don't have all the answers. I'm kind of on that journey myself. But I hope it inspires you to join me in that pursuit. Uh, and so anyways, I'm not going to say any more because then I'll just probably end up repeating what you're about to hear anyways. I will say this, though. I will say this. Um, when Eddie interviewed me, I was just using my phone. Um, and my phone was almost dead, so I couldn't plug the microphone into it because I had to plug the charger into it. Which means that the audio in this interview is not the greatest. Eddie sounds great. I sound a bit odd, <laughs> kind of echoey, 
Um, I did my best in post-processing to, you know, make it a little less bad. But do keep that in mind. The audio isn't the greatest in this conversation. But it's still, if you can look past the, the audio quality a bit, I think you'll really, really, really enjoy the content. Uh, so anyways, um, I want to wish you guys an awesome week. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I hope it inspires you, challenges you um, to continue to, to redesign Adventism for mission in your local setting, your local context. I'm going to go ahead and flip over to the interview, but I will catch you next week with some cool new content. Because human need needs to be addressed, you know. Um, human human suffering needs to be addressed. Human longing needs to be addressed. And you and I consistently have that conversation in terms of what it is that we're looking at in a spiritual sense, in terms of this imperialism and and, and empire. That, that's what we're that's what we're looking at. We're looking at a spiritual movement um, of in, of imperialism of of empire. And, and how we find ourselves to be people of spiritual resistance in, in this time, you know. Yep. T- tell me how you see where we find ourselves as, tell me how you see this space in which we find ourselves in, in terms of uh, a wider spiritual narrative, you know, and, hmm. and the way in which we talk. Um, what, is it that you're, that, what is it that you're looking at? Yeah, man, that's a <laughs> that's a big question, bro. Oh man. So, you know, when it comes to this conversation, I think part of the difficulty that that accompanies it is, is a multivariate conversation. There's so many different stripes of color that are associated with, you know, when it comes to the humanitarian and social cry for justice. It's a it's a multivariate conversation. Um, but I want to tackle this probably from the perspective of my own faith tribe, because I think that's, you know, a good place to start. I'm in the middle right now of uh, working on a, a book on Daniel, mm-hmm. um, the, the biblical book of Daniel, the prophetic book of Daniel. And, and I, I've decided to write this book uh, for, for two reasons. Uh, probably the main reason is that there isn't, as far as I'm aware, I mean, <laughs> I haven't seen any, although I'm not not like I, I've seen everything, but I like I, I went to the ABC and I said, I want to I want to find a book on the book of Daniel that you see, that's the, the, Advent- the Adventist Book Center. Adventist Book Center. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Let me uh, I'll, I'll watch it with the acronyms. <laughs> um, and and I, I wanted to find a book that that explored Daniel in a way that interacted with the categories of modernity or, or post and meta modernity. Uh, and that includes a, a, a large emphasis on justice and humanitarian service and empire. Um, and, and really all I found were books that were really heavy on religio-centric ideals and religio-centric concepts. And if they mentioned anything to do with social or humanitarian justice, it was kind of like in passing. Uh, and so I just decided, you know what, be, be, be the change you want to see. So I started working on one. And I guess here's where I would probably lay the foundation and then we can go from there and build from there is that when I look at the book of Daniel, fundamentally, the thing that I see is Daniel puts on blast an idea that's elsewhere throughout all of scripture. And that is that there is a struggle. There is a tension between two kingdoms, 
right? Um, that's the narrative of Daniel. There is a struggle between two kingdoms, two kingdoms that can never really um, coexist. And, and one kingdom is driven by this rhythm of other centeredness. And the other kingdom is driven by the impulse of self advancement. And so this is why when it when it references empires and divisions, it refers to them as beasts, because a beast operates off of the impulse of self-preservation. Mm-hmm. And, and this is essentially the, the protest of the book of Daniel is that human empire at its very best is a beast that is manifesting the impulse of self-advancement or self-preservation. Um, and But then there's this other kingdom throughout the whole book. You know, there's this other kingdom. And it's not just that here's a key. It's a huge key. And you'll probably want to extrapolate on this a little bit more as we go. But this other kingdom, it's transcendent, but it's also right there. Mm. You know, So it's like it's this other kingdom that like we see in the vision of Daniel, too, that's going to come from the outside and it's going gonna, it's gonna to demolish this, this legacy of human empire. But at the same time, it's present in history and it's, it's embedded in the suffering and the injustices. It's, it's there and it's, and, it's, and it's prophetically crying out against these things uh, until its ultimate sort of manifestation. You know, So um, that's what I see in Daniel. And so I'm working through Daniel, I'm working through the narrative, I'm working through the visions and, and just sort of pulling out this theme of protest, this theme of resistance to, to empire that... God has not called us as his people um, to settle and, and be comfortable in the systems of this world, right? And, and, and to just sort of sit back in our privilege and say, oh, yeah, I like how this is working out for me, right? But that our lives are to be a consistent prophetic protest to, to the injustice of empire. So anyways, I, I don't, I don't want to go too far because I, you know, I might end up somewhere you don't want to go yet. So. <laughs> this is exactly where I want to go because I think, I think, you know, within the religious context, um, we think that being prophetic only is about um, speaking in dates and times and looking mm-hmm. for, you know, just looking for signs and wonders and 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 just try to pinpoint everything on some type of chart um like well the world is about to end and and it kind of it 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 takes us away from yeah but how do you be a voice how do you be a present in this space that speaks to as it were this beast that speaks to this time that speaks to this context you know so a prophetic voice being not just a voice that um that actually um, cries out of signs to come, as it were, but a prophetic mm-hmm. voice that actually addresses the injustice, the inequity that injust that that cries out against, as it were, the imperialism of of the moment in which it finds itself, and 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 and, and serves as re- and serves as resistance, resistance to that time. What do you? How do you see that then in the context of where we find ourselves now with this unmasking, as it were, of this of this universal consciousness of, all right, there's a construct out here that's governing this whole world in which we live. You know what I mean? Yeah. One group of people um, in terms of systemic racism and white supremacy. Um, how do you see that fitting into this whole narrative of what we're, what we're discussing here? Yeah. 
So, all right. So one angle that I can answer that question from is that um, one of the things I see in the culture right now, uh, to quote Dave Chappelle, right, the streets are talking, right? <laughs> the streets are talking, bro. Um, and, and the streets are crying out. And, and, and what you find in, 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 in the cultural consciousness is that when, when people begin to cry out, they begin to, you know, the, the, the cry of the heart is, is always going to be undergirded by a, 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 by a lens, by a, a particular substructure that governs your cry. Um, and so what I mean by that is, so for example, I'll frame it this way. Um, I've seen a lot of people saying, hey, you know, the church shouldn't have anything to do with social justice. Um, and, and they try and look at, you know, they try and say, oh, you know, there's a, you know, it's Marxist and all these different things. Um, you know, all these sort of pejorative ideas attached to it. Um, and look, this is a space that I'm constantly learning and growing from. But the way I understand it right now is that an idea, for example, like social justice, a cry, like a cry for social justice is itself, the way you define it and the way you express it is itself guided by, by a substrate, by a system of thought, by a worldview. And if as the church, right, if, if the church is not jumping into that conversation, really we should have been leading it, but that's a separate, that's a separate point, but we'll get, we can get back to that. But if we decide we're gonna demonize this conversation rather than get in there and demonstrate an atonement-driven prophetic model of justice, of social justice and humanitarian uh, service, if we refuse to get into that conversation, then the only thing we leave the culture with is the, the is is systems and worldviews that are not based on the atonement. They're not based on universal harmony and oneness and, and redemption. And you know what I'm saying? So I feel like um, one angle to answer your question is that as a church, we have not historically done a good job. And and I can only speak as an Adventist because that's what I am. I've been an Adventist all my life, right? But like our pioneers were deeply involved in social justice and 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 the cry against empire. And we can talk about that a little bit more as well. But that is an identity that was lost um, as as the years went by. And you know, it's it's tragic when you look at some of the history within our church, more recent history, like. Um, what happened in, in Germany where, where you know, the, the Adventist church sort of complied with, with the Third Reich, you know, and, and of course, I don't, I don't want to be theatrical. I don't, I don't think people were sitting there aware that there was a, you know, genocide going on. But at the same time, they, there were clear red flags of injustice that were simply ignored. And, but they kept preaching the same message, you know, like they're still proclaiming the same message. But it's been divorced from its social humanitarian element. We saw this in South Africa as well with apartheid. We saw it in America with Jim Crow. And, 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 and so there's, you know, even if we go to um, um, during the Rwandan genocide and, and we saw the same thing manifested. In fact, the very first person who was tried in the Rwandan genocide for crimes against humanity was a Seventh-day Adventist pastor, mm -hmm. right? I'm sure his theology didn't change during that time, right? But he manifested a, a social irresponsibility, and, and or more than that, because he was actually complicit in murder um, of, of, of Tutsis. So there's a sense in which, you know, we cannot afford to not be in this conversation. And in my call, what, what, what I'm trying to encourage people to do is, 
look at look at this system of thought that God has given us. Look at this biblical worldview, the atonement, right? The, the prophetic message. And let's take that and construct a social justice, a voice and, and a humanitarian voice for social justice based on the atonement, based on the prophetic voice, based on the what, sanctuary. Well, let's let's talk about that. What does what does what does that look like? What in your mind, what does social justice look like if you're looking at it? from the through the lens of um of this spiritual resistance if you're looking at it through mm. this prophetic lens of being present in the time <clears throat> and not divorced from it being actually immersed in it what does that social justice look like yeah man that's a brilliant question dude and it's probably the main question that i'm trying to work out the as best as possible because I, I guess I'll tell you where I'm at right now. I feel like a lot of times when people ask that question, what they're looking for is like a formula. Yeah. Right? It's, it's like a formula that says, um, should we be involved in politics? Tick yes or no. Uh, <laughs> if it's yes, should it be 50%, 90%, 100%? Know, tick, tick one of these. Um, and if it is, should it be the left or the right? Tick one. <laughs> and, and it just... It's like people are looking for a formula. And, and the more I look at it, the more I'm like, I don't think there's a formula, man. Uh, the, the best way that I could exp express it right now is that as I look at, at how this whole thing is playing out in the world today, and as I look at history, um, what I see, it, let, let's go, for example, let's go to Adventist history really quickly. Um, we can go all the way back to the Millerites. And for those who are watching who are unfamiliar with Adventist history, the Millerites are kind of the precursors to the Adventist movement. Um, and a lot of Millerites were abolitionists. Right? They were actively involved in the abolition of slavery. But if you know your church history at all, you know that the Millerites also believed that Jesus was going to come back in 1844. <laughs> um, and so it's like, now they did believe that in, in their mind, because they thought the second coming was so close, that slavery wouldn't be abolished until Jesus came. But they still fought against slavery. It wasn't like, oh, Jesus is coming, so forget about it. You know, we're not going to do anything. We're just going to sort of just preach Jesus' return. And then when he comes, he'll sort it out. Like, it's, it's almost like a, like a paradox. And, and they live within the tension of that paradox. And you see this a lot in the early Adventists as well. Like, they always believed that the second coming of Jesus was imminent. And yet a lot of them were involved in the abolition movement. And they opposed the federal, the fugitive slave laws. And, you know, on, on pain of imprisonment, right? And, and, and they opposed segregation and all kinds of things. And so... You know, th this is this is the, the thing that I think some people are, are they want this formula that's like, oh, because we preach the gospel, we don't involve ourselves in that at all. You know, and then if you tell them, no, we should be involved, then they want a really, really sexy outline on how you're supposed to be involved. And the way I see it is, you know, I think for me, it's like a it's 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 messy. It's messy. We have to look at our message, the message God has given us right. And, and, and the call that he's placed on our heart. And we have to look at the world around us and say, what is the best way that I can communicate this narrative to the culture around me? So one example I gave to one guy who messaged me was, um, you know, he's, he's, trying, he's, trying, he's looking for his formula, right? He's looking for his formula. Mm -hmm. And the question I asked him was, all right, um, suppose, suppose you live in Brooklyn during the time of, uh, what did they call that? The um, Urban Renewal Project. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, during the time of the Urban Renewal Project, and for those who are unfamiliar with that uh, Urban Renewal Project, they were they were purposefully displacing poor communities, most of which were African-American, uh, in order to pretty much pretty up New York City. 
Mm-hmm. Um, make it nice for the elites, right? Like um, of, say again? Like a type of gentrification. Yeah, basically, yeah. So so I said to him, imagine you decide, hey, I'm going to move into Brooklyn during this time. I can't remember the year. It might have been the 1940s or something like that. So it's like, I'm going to move into this city in this place and, and I'm going to spread the kingdom. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to build the kingdom here. And, and you're connecting with people and you're doing Bible study, but then people just keep disappearing. You know, it's like you're trying, you're trying to build the kingdom in this community and you're trying to do something meaningful. But, you know, people who come to your studies or who come to your gatherings, they just keep disappearing. And you're like, where's everybody at? And then eventually you, you discover, hey, there's this urban renewal project that's displacing poor people. And you realize, like, you'll never build the kingdom there unless you raise your voice civically yeah. against that system of oppression. Right. Yeah. And so that's kind of where I am. It's like, I know 100% that a political solution is not, is not the answer, right? Because human empire will always be a beast. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's this paradox. There's this messiness that says, if you want to build the kingdom of God effectively, you cannot be silent and just check out, you know? Yeah. There, there's, there's a messy interaction. And I wish I could give you a formula, but at, at least where I'm at right now, I'm kind of like, on a case by case, I'm like just just jumping in and, and doing my best. It's it's interesting because somebody says uh, that they're not looking for a formula about how to how how to get involved in social justice um, and tie it um, to their their, their Christian um, heritage or their advented without getting involved in the political side. Like, well, there ain't no way to avoid the political side because it's the political side that actually ties it into that reality. You know what I mean? Mm. Like what you're talking about the idea of imminence and living with the concept of imminence, but not devoiding it of not being devoid of, of, of the pull of the present. Yeah. Around mm. the is about, is, is about to happen when we're, we're living with that. But meanwhile, there is something that is pressing. There is something that is immediate that has to be addressed and has to be, um, has to be, um, has to be dealt with um, where mm. we find ourselves. So I was asked today in terms of my views of social justice and I was actually I did two sets of two different um, um, discussion groups across social media. And within my view, then tell me what you think. Social justice is always about a group of people who are standing, as it were, in resistance to you don't have to necessarily. And we talked about this the other day and using using Jesus as a model for social justice and and being present in terms of people say Jesus was the revolutionary and you know Jesus was a real revolutionary and some people will say well you show me where he marched and show me where he got involved in political issues and yet you and I know that literally everything Jesus did and said was was almost a, was always as it were a protest you know, mm. we're just talking about this this beast, which is preservationist, and this other kingdom, which is other centered. You know what mm. I mean? And you see that actually really manifest itself within the reality of Jesus within the world in which he lived, in that religious world, in that political world, in that Roman world, in that social world. Everything was a set construct in, mm. in the world in which he lived, and yet everything he did seemed to be a protest without even actually opening his mouth to say down with Rome or down with the temple or down mm. with, you know what I mean? <laughs> down yeah. with um, the, the, the religious order. Talk about that in terms of how you see him 
manifesting that, you know, that that beast, that imperialism, which is there. And yet him that is other centered, bringing this other kingdom and that and that tension that you spoke about. Yeah, now that's a really good question, man. Um, I think. Yeah, I think if if you read the Gospels. Um, if you read the Gospels with a sort of imperial lens, it's so easy to miss the radical nature of Jesus. And we paint Jesus very easily. And I grew up with these sort of conceptualizations of Jesus as this sort of uh, uh, religio-centric figure. But when you when you read the Gospels and you actually, you know, you actually look at what Jesus is doing, you realize that in just about everything he does, he he's opposing the establishment. And, and this is the difficulty is that like Jesus wasn't murdered by a coalition of liberals and conservatives, you know, Israel, Israelites and, 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 and Romans, because he was walking around saying nice things about who God is, right? Jesus was murdered because he was a threat to the establishment, right? John the Baptist was murdered because he was a threat to the establishment. Zechariah was murdered because he was a threat to the establishment. Jeremiah was exiled because he was a threat to the establishment. Isaiah was, as the Jewish tradition tells us, sawn in two because he was a threat to the establishment, right? And so there's a sense in which human empire manifests a, 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 an established order, a way of being, and the kingdom of God is always in direct opposition to that. It always threatens that status quo, that stability. And I want to be careful not to go down a, a track where I, 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 I end up <laughs> overcomplicating things, but one of the most honest thinkers when it comes to empire, and this is my opinion, right? Um, some people don't can't stand the guy, but one of, in my opinion, one of the most honest thinkers when it comes to empire is the Italian philosopher Niccolo Machiavelli. Um, and, and when you look at the philosophy of Niccolo Machiavelli, what, what I love about Niccolo Machiavelli is he's honest, right? He looks at the world around him and he realizes empire, empire, cannot function without stability. That's, that's sort of the foundation of Niccolo Machiavelli's idea, right? The, the sole purpose of empire is to create stability. Mm -hmm. Because without stability, you can't build your economy. You can't build your infrastructure. You can't build your agriculture. You got to have stability. Mm -hmm. And so what Niccolo Machiavelli developed was this idea that the people that we put in charge of ensuring that stability cannot be held to the same ethical standards as everyday folk. Mm. Because the people that we put in charge of manifesting that stability, they, they, they have to make decisions that everyday folk never have to make. So he came up with this term. I'm trying to remember what it was right now. Um, I, I can't remember what it is right now, but it's basically his idea was that the politician should or is within his ethical rights, or better said, he operates according to his own ethic. And his ethic allows him to cheat. It allows him to lie. It allows him to manipulate. It allows him to assassinate if need be, right? This is why when people talk about Machiavelli, the, the name is, a, is almost a, a curse word today, right? The Machiavellian. When you call somebody Machiavellian, it's not a good thing, right? And, and, and what Nicola was basically saying was, hey, look, um, if, humanity, if humanity is just left to itself, it's just anarchy. 
And you can't build a meaningful life on anarchy. And so we sort of gather together in these communities where we try and build a social contract so we can create some level of stability. And in time, as we come into contact with other communities that want to take what we have, we, we have to develop a system that secures the stability of our world, of mm -hmm. our empire. And that means we have to lie. And that means we have to manipulate, right? Like imagine an honest king. An honest king can't set up an ambush to surprise attack his enemy because, you know, he would be he would be deceitful and setting up an ambush, right? <laughs> so it's like, that was his idea. Like empire must deceive empire. It has to operate this way, right? And, and not all political philosophers agreed with him, but none of them have been able to manifest a, a society or an empire that doesn't actually do what Machiavelli said, right? Um, and so this is the nature of human empire. And this is what we see in Daniel, like that the empire of man and the kingdom of God are, are they're never really going to mix. And so when you start living out the ethic of God's kingdom, right, when you start living out the rhythm of, of oneness and atonement and, 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 and the character of Christ, you're naturally going to come into opposition, right? You're, you're going to ruffle feathers. You're going to annoy the establishment. It's, it's just the natural course of what happens when you live out the rhythm of God's heart in a society. So I don't know if that answers your question or not, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because what you're basically saying is you see, you're seeing that basically manifesting in, in Jesus. That's why he's hmm. because he's actually living at a whole other rhythm in the face of empire that is actually making empire that is making empire nervous that is exposing the heart of empire you know what i mean mm. so i suppose you see that now you see you're seeing that played out where you look at for instance places like america in the 60s where you have these leaders you know what i mean for instance within the civil rights movement within um um malcolm x i'm thinking of within the black panthers within all of these that actually live out or seeking to live out a philosophy or introduce a philosophy that upsets the way the empire tries to is trying to construct the world and 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 um, determine the way in which people um, people should live. You see that played out in terms of no, we can't have this. Anything that disrupts the way we in which we we define the way in which we define human existence that that must actually be gotten rid of. And so you see that played out. You're saying you see you see that played out specifically and directly in the life of Jesus Christ because how how do you why do you murder a man that only wants to do good why do you murder a man that only wants people to speak truth or people to live other centeredly and not self centered yeah. That's right. So what you see in Jesus then is this balance, um, and 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 again the balance is not formulaic. You know, a lot of times when we talk about balance, we, we automatically assume it's this neat little fulcrum right in the middle. If we can just find it, then everything's good and dandy. You know, the, the, the balance is dynamic and it's paradoxical and it's messy. But what we see in Jesus is this balance between, you know, you, you look at the religious leaders of the time who are basically complying with the Roman Empire as a way of preserving their own nation. Right. They're trying to keep the peace. They're trying to keep the status quo. They don't want to annoy the Romans too much. You know, they 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 won't let them go too far, like put an image of Caesar in the sanctuary. But they're, they're also not, you know, they're not looking for like this open revolution either. They're trying to keep the peace. And 
and this is, you know, for the for the, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees, this is why, you know, when they said better one man die than the whole nation be destroyed, right? Because Jesus was creating this instability that was threatening, you know, this this new king, this new kingdom. It's like, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, the Romans are going to slaughter us if you keep talking like this. Um, so you see that. But then on the on the flip side, Jesus wasn't like Barabbas. You know, he, he wasn't a, a, a zealot, a revolutionary zealot who was seeking the liberation of a temporal kingdom by using the methods of, of empire, which is essentially what the, the revolutionaries were doing, right? They were simply resorting to the methods of empire to try and secure a better future for, for Israel. Jesus always navigated this, this middle ground, and it was always based on God's kingdom. And, and you know, he's standing before Pilate, and he says, look, if, if my kingdom was of this world, my followers would fight for me. But my kingdom's not of this world. So it operates according to a different ethic, right? It's what theologians have called the upside down kingdom. And, and the thing that, that, that I'm working on on a, on, a, on a consistent basis and wrestling with is, and praying through is what does it look like for me as a follower of Jesus to live the upside down kingdom right now? Mm-hmm. Because at least again, in my experience, my faith tribe, there is a long history of we've just gotten comfortable. Mm. You know, we've gotten comfortable. We, we, we love Western society. We love the way it <laughs> functions. And we're just here. We're just hanging out. And we're not really opposing much of anything. And the tragedy of that mentality manifests itself in extremes like Germany and South Africa and, and Jim Crow era. Um, but it also manifests itself in really small ways you know, that aren't necessarily as dramatic or as theatrical. And so what does it look like to live this upside down kingdom, right? What is, what does it look like to nurture and develop? And that's what I'm working on now, right? Is, is, is nurturing and fully developing this idea of a model of social justice that's based on the atonement, right? And that's based on, on this kingdom ethic. I don't have all the answers because I'm I'm in the journey right now, right? Like I'm, I'm it is probably the reason why this conversation is so good. But you know that manif- that's my question. What are you seeing manifesting itself in that journey? I know you haven't come up. I mean, who who does have all the answers? But mm. what are you seeing manifesting itself in terms of a model. What do you see manifesting itself in terms of an idea? Um, when you say atonement um what 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 do you mean um i know some okay. people saying maybe hearing that and saying well what do you mean when you say atonement within this whole yeah. within this whole idea what does that look like yeah so i, I actually preached a sermon recently at, at my church is called atonement living um and and I, and I look at the concept of atonement in scripture and and for most people when they think of atonement they think of the cross and that's certainly atonement right atonement, atonement took place there but atonement has a broader meaning in scripture as well. And the idea behind atonement is that it is the, the best way to define it. Maybe the simplest way you can write a big book on this, but probably the simplest way to define what it means to atone is to take the word atone itself and, and split it into at one. That's what atone is, right? To atone is to, to, to bring things back to oneness. One and so what we see in, yeah, yeah. So, so what we see in scripture's narrative is there's atonement at the cross, and then there's this final full manifestation of atonement at the end of time where the whole universe is brought back into oneness 
with the heart of God, right? There's this one pulse of harmony that beats through the vast creation is a quote from one of Ellen White's books that there's this oneness that's restored to the universe, to creation, to reality, to society, right? There's this oneness. And so the beautiful thing though, is that when you look in the New Testament and you read Paul's writings, even though this oneness, this ultimate manifestation of oneness is, is in the future, in, 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 you know, after the second coming, Paul is instructing the church to manifest that oneness in the here and now. So he tells his church things like, there is neither Jew or Greek, male or female, rich or poor, all are one in Christ Jesus, right? And so he's taking the categorizations of division that you find in culture and empire, and he's saying, we don't live by those categories. We live by atonement, right? The atonement then becomes a model that it's not just like a future idea and a future event. It's a process. It's a present experience that we're manifesting here. And so what does it look like for me then to live my life in a way where I say, how can I bring oneness in a world that's divided and chaotic and, and just, you know, <laughs> falling apart at the seams. Like, what does it look like for me to go to my local church and say, how can this local church in this city be a space of uh, 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 um, uh, a space of uh, space isn't the exact word I'm looking for, but, you know, it's 9 p.m. here. So or almost um, <laughs> so, you know, but but like a a nurturer of oneness in this community. You know, so I'll give I'll give you a quick example of what this can look like. It's, you know, very practical. So a friend of mine um, was attending a local church in a really liberal part of America in Massachusetts. And she had just moved there and she had a bumper sticker in the back of her car that said Savannah Christian because she moved there from Savannah, Georgia and it said Savannah Christian. And her first day there people at the stoplight are like yelling at her because of the sticker, right? It's like super politically liberal. Christians not very welcome. <laughs> um, and I actually visited her and, you know, like I just come from Tennessee because that's where I was studying. And like in Tennessee, every other radio station is a Christian station. You know, you get to this part of America, there's no Christian stations at all, you know, at least not, not at that time. That was some years ago. But here's the thing. Her local church that she attended were looking for a way to manifest um, the kingdom of God in their community through, through acts of service, right, through acts of mercy. Something that would actually touch people's lives besides mere sermonizing. Mm -hmm. And they did one of the most radical things I've ever heard of, bro. Like, seriously, it was awesome, though. They looked at their community because there was a big college campus there, university campus. And what they saw was that on the big party nights throughout the year, the drunk driving incidents were quite high, right? And so they said, let's not just be a church in this space that preaches sermons and gives Bible studies. Let's change the statistics in this city. And so they put teams together. Now, the amount of sacrifice that this took would have been insane, but they did it, man. They put, put teams together, a Friday night team and a Saturday night team. They worked with the police. They worked with the university. They got the clearance. They got the training. They volunteered cars. And they basically became a, we give free rides to drunk students during the big party nights of the year. And they didn't hide the fact that they were a church, right? They, they were very open and said, look, we're a church. And, you know, they had these little goodie bags that they handed out. And every car had a person who was trained to, to deal with, you know, drunk kids and, you know, drunk students and, and, but also to talk with them. And they got into some crazy conversations. And she told me about one of them. She said, this, this young guy asked him, he was like, wait, you guys are Christians. Um, 
why would you want to be around people like us? Right. That was his question. And of course, her reply was, you know, we, we love you guys. Anyways, long story short, when when that church shows up on campus to do anything re, re, related to the gospel, people will look at them and say, those are the ones who give free rides to drunk students. Mm. You know, what this church has done is it has manifested the kingdom ethic, right? It has, it has manifested God's love in such a practical way that actually changes the, it changes the statistics in that city, you know, drunk driving statistics start to go down. Right. And so what they've done is they've actually engaged the social space in a way that transforms lives and culture in that community. And that then gives them the moral grounds on which to talk about God and the gospel, right? Now, this is one example, obviously, um, that deals more with the, with the, um, you know, the, the issues of drunk driving and things like that. Uh, but I think it's, it's a good practical example of what it means to be a church that's not merely, you know, come here, we'll preach a sermon. Come here, we we'll do a Bible study. Come here, you know, we teach you this. It's like we're going out there. We're putting ourselves out there. to actively manifest God's kingdom in the lives of people who don't know us. And it's just insane. Yeah. I'll stop there. I talk too much. I'm American, you know, because that, that, that is the um, idea of actually being um, um, present, you know what Mm. I mean? Present being immediate, you know what I mean? Um, And, and being um, actually, um, and, and, and actually being actual hands and feet rather than mm. just a theoretical idea um, yeah. of hands and feet. Um, I love that as a form of, 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 of resistance. I love that as a, re- um, a, a form of resistance to the self-preservationist idea of, of a beast, yeah. a beast empire, you know what I mean? Mm. That if you are gonna be in this space of imperialism and empire, spiritual resistance is about how you actually live and not so much speak in resistance to it, but actually live in resistance. You know, this idea of people always, it's a, it's a phrase that we hear a lot, especially in the social justice space of speaking power to truth. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a kind of limiting idea though, because of people, a lot of people want to speak power to truth, but not actually be the truth. <laughs> Mm. actually want to be the truth that they're speaking they just want mm. to speak power to it you know what i mean um but i think right. I, I i feel like the idea of this spiritual resistance this idea of this atonement this idea of what god is trying to do in this moment is actually not have people who actually just speak power to truth but people who are truth in the midst of power mm. people a lot actually- of yeah in the midst of power so that people can see lived flesh and blood truth and i think that's what they mm-hmm. saw with um i think that's what they saw with jesus christ yeah. him they not only saw somebody who spoke but they actually no they saw lived truth like mm-hmm. our, this is what truth looks like when it has hands feet legs mm-hmm. sweats gloves <laughs> etc in in that space um mm-hmm. So would you speak speak to this idea of spiritual of this idea of resistance with the way we find ourselves in this moment of this universal as it were awakening now 
of white supremacy and systemic racism because yeah. nobody can deny it now. Nobody can actually, um, nobody can um, um, ignore it any longer. People are understanding, yeah. We saw the knee on George Floyd's neck, but that knee was symbolic of so much more on top of it. We saw the outplaying of an idea that ended in a knee, you know what mm. I mean? And I think that's why you're seeing this universal protest. Um, yeah. Something has been unmasked. Um, mm. And it's, 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 it's it, it, that runs deeper than police brutality. T tell me, um, how does this resistance work in this space mm. that we find ourselves now? Yeah, no, really good question, man. You know, I think to a large degree, when it comes to these issues, we, we, again, I'm speaking from my own experience in my own faith tribe, right? We, we, we kind of try and, 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 and walk this fence where it's like, theoretically, we stand for the, you know, equality of all people, theoretically. Um, but on a practical level, are we, are we, are we really, really um, manifesting that? And, and what I mean by that is, for example, going back to the, the days of the pioneers and Adventism, um, there was a very strong belief that was held not just by, by Ellen White, but by um, others, even going back to the Millerite movement, that if you were a, if you were a slaveholder, if you even sympathized. Ellen White is one of the founders of. of one of the founders. Yep. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, that if you were a slaveholder or if you even sympathized with the institution of slavery, um, you, you couldn't be a member of the church, mm -hmm. you know? So there was this clear line of demarcation that said, like, this is what we stand for as a people. And here's the thing that people need to understand, like, that idea, it was, it wasn't popular back then. The, the, the churches that were pushing this idea, and the Adventists weren't the only ones, we also had the, the Quakers who were quite passionate about this as well. Um, they, they were not trending, you know, they, they were not cool. They, they were not hip. Like this was countercultural, right? They, they were leading the conversation in many ways. They, they were not, you know, the hipsters in the cafe, you know, like they, they, they were the, <laughs> they were the irritating, annoying people that you labeled a cult, right? Um, and in many ways, I was listening to uh, an interview and I wish I could remember the guy's name because what he said was so brilliant. It was an interview that Arise did recently, Jeffrey Rosario. And, and a few other guys. And I wish I could remember the guy's name right now. But if you go on the Arise page and you look up on Facebook um, and you look up uh, some of their latest videos, you'll see the interview about Adventism and social justice to history. And one of the guys makes this brilliant point that um, early, early Adventists, they, they weren't speaking truth to power or being truth to power, as you were saying, when, when everybody else was doing it. Right? They weren't waiting for the explosion of collective pain to take yeah. place they 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 were immersed in the conversation when it wasn't cool to be mm -hmm. and and i think in many ways like i'm super proud of a lot of the things that are manifesting in our community right now with people standing up and you know all this new information coming out about you know our roots and our history and our identity but what this guy was saying was we 
even even in all that beauty, we're still we're still trailing behind. Like we're not leading the conversation, right? We're 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 back here, and then the 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 culture cries out, and we're like, okay, we'll come cry out with you. When it's like we should have been crying out all along, you know. And so I think that that's a really important conversation that we need to have as a church. And and what does that look like? You know, I hear all kinds of ideas. You know, I saw someone today saying we we need a truth and reconciliation day as a denomination where we really put this stuff on the table. And instead of having like these sort of uh, sporadic little apologies here and there, we have just like, we just, you know, we go into the wound and, and, and we, we, we gut it out, you know, we gut out all the pus and all the junk and we just really do the hard, the hard yard, you know? Um, and so, you know, what is, what does this ultimately look like? I, I think that's certainly a part of it. Um, now to comment on the whole concept of, of, uh, you know, white supremacy and, and things like that, I think, um, you know, just a few thoughts on that. Yeah, this is a really messy conversation as well. But I'd say that it's going to be difficult for us to move forward as a church in these conversations if we are not bold enough to confront what, what I what I often refer to as Anglo-sacralism, right? And so, so what I mean by Anglo Anglo-sacralism is the is the is the sacralization of the Anglo way of being and expression. And that's embedded, you know, that's embedded in our, in our church. You know, there's, there's a sense, and I grew up this way, you know, um, I've shared this story a few times on my podcast um, because uh, it's a clear one. One of the clearest moments in my life where it really got me thinking about this stuff. I was a teenager and I asked my mother, I said, uh, mom, why don't, why don't we worship? Cause I went to a Latin church and said, mom, why, why don't we worship with uh, the music of our island? Right. And, you know, Puerto Rico has different ki- kinds of music that are sort of a mixture of Arabic and African and Spaniard and Taino Indian um, country music, you know, all different, different types. And um, and I asked, her, I said, how come we don't worship with the music of our island? You know, we, we always sing the hymns and I love the hymns. Don't get me twisted. I love hymns. Right. But it's like, why, why can't we sing songs with the music of our island as well? Anyways, my mother's reply was, well, what happens is when you receive Jesus you abandon your culture for his. <laughs> and as a 15-year-old, I was like, all right, yeah, I guess that works, you know? But it wasn't until later that I actually stopped and thought, well, who decides what his culture is? <laughs> because if anything, his culture was, you know, first century Middle Eastern <laughs> Jew, you know? Um and I don't see anybody trying to be like that. So, you know, that's when I got to sort of studying history and, and I learned more about Eurocentrism and colonialism. And I realized like there is this really strong trend within the church that essentially says holy is Anglo. Mm-hmm. Like, sacred is Anglo. Mm-hmm. And that the only way to express yourself before God in a way that is accepted is defined by the parameters that have been placed by Anglo culture. So the, the Angloism is sacralized. And I make this really clear to people when I say this, like, I love Anglo culture, man. I love hymns. Uh, I, I love the history. I love the art. Like, I love it. There's nothing against Anglo culture. It's the sacralization of it. And I say to people, like, you know, if Puerto Ricans sacralized Anglo, I mean, Puerto Rican culture, and went around telling everyone, you have to listen to salsa music and wear guayaberas or else you're not holy. You know, like, 
you you have a right to be like, wait a minute, bro. Like, hold on a second, you know? Um, and so the reason why I bring this up is because in the conversation of race in the church, this isn't the biggest issue, mm. but it's, it's, it's one of those surface issues that, that hits the nerve really hard. And you can have conversations about multiculturalism and, and all those things. But for some reason, it's when you get to topics like this, right? I guess it's probably because they're so practical and, and, and they, they, they're, they're in your face that you really see the nerves start to fly. So a few, I think it was last year, I shared a video on my Facebook page of the song Amazing Grace. It's one of my favorite renditions of the song Amazing Grace because it has uh, an African guy leading it. He's quite popular, actually. I can't remember his name. But it's an African guy leading it. And he's got um, like Polynesian, you know, Congo drummers in the background and, and you know, they're playing. And then he's got like um, sort of Celtic, you know, so it's like this mixture of African and Islander and Celtic European. So it's like the piano, violins, the Congos. You know, it's just beautiful. It's like really multicultural just so stunning. And I shared it on my Facebook page and a, a group of my Adventist friends from, you know, from America start commenting, oh, this is savagery. You know, this is disgusting. What he's doing is, you know, he's acting like a savage and, and this is an insult to God and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, dang, you know, it really struck a nerve. But that's what I'm talking about. It's this idea, like everyone is happy to talk about, yes, everyone's equal until it comes down to the details. The devil's always in the details. Mm -hmm. And so long as our church is unwilling to have this serious conversation on anglo-sacralism and not only repent of it, but remove the propaganda that, pro that, that projects it into our consciousness, propaganda that's found in our bookstores, propaganda that's found in our TV, you know, our satellite channels, digital channels, until we're willing to take that step, I think there's always going to be this narrative of anglo-sacralism that gets in the way of progress. Um, so that's just a few thoughts on, you know, on that. So I don't know if I made any sense, bro. I'm kind of all over the place here. <laughs> sense, you know what I mean? People, people, people um, are actually responding to it um, in that way that it makes sense. I'm here talking with Marcus Torres. We're talking imperialism, empire and spiritual resistance. Um, just kind of creating a, a, a narrative. How do we think about this space that we find ourselves from a spiritual narrative? How do we live um, as people of resistance um, to the evil that we see in the world? Um, how do we live with a type of spiritual fortitude? I think these conversations are important because I don't think people are hearing uh, a real thought out thought out conversations about where we see ourselves um, as as believers in this moment. Um, mm. And like I said, I think I feel like to a large degree, the church has really just abdicated its responsibility, abdicated its voice, not not totally, you know mm. what I mean? I mean, I know our denomination um, within, you know, and, you know, I like I like your approach. It's the same as mine. I, I can't speak for any other denomination, my faith tribe is, is Seventh-day Adventist, so I can only speak from my, my uh, faith tribe. I know in this country, there is, where we live here, there is just no voice on anything concerning that. The church is just totally, no, we don't discuss that. You know what I mean? It's almost like, well, it's a good thing, it's in America, so we can actually sit here and be very um, dismissive of what's taking place here and just say, well, thank God, you know, that ain't happening here with us. Almost like Scott Dobson did the other day. 
when Terman said, "Well, I'm, 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 I'm really glad we at least we never had slavery here in in Australia." You know what I mean? At least we never had um, um, slavery here in Australia. And the academics who just and the historians who came out and said, "Look, Mr. Prime Minister, if you don't know, what you're doing, just shut up." You know what I mean? Please. Just, just, just shut up. Of course we had it. You know, if you're gonna have genocide, of course you're gonna have slavery at the same time. You know what I mean? Because it's it's the same idea of imperialism, the taking over of the country, the the the, the raiding of resources. Um, you know, and um, the othering of people's lives, all of them go hand in hand and slavery pops up in the midst of it. And, and of course, historically, um, it does. So I think it's really good that there is a voice. I think that it's, it's, it's good that we're having this. Um, 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 it's, it's good that we're having this conversation so that we can actually put some type of we can put some type of structure to, or some type of idea to who we need to be in this moment and, and who we should be in this moment. So what is resistance? Let's talk about spiritual resistance then. In this moment then that we find ourselves in, what does spiritual resistance look like for you then? What does these people who are in this moment, living through this time, um, people of faith from all type of different faith traditions, um, but, actually being present in this time what does it look like to practice spiritual resistance in this time yeah good question man i think it looks different for different people mm -hmm. and uh, let, let me try and expand on that uh to some degree uh because I'd, I'd love for those who are listening to have you know something practical to walk away with uh even though i don't have all the answers i'm, I'm immersed in this space and trying to figure it out just as much as the next guy. Um, but I do think ultimately it, it looks different for different people because pe different people have different spheres of influence. Mm. And some people's sphere of influence is large. Some people's sphere of influence is small. But regardless of what your sphere of influence is, I believe that there's a calling over your life as a follower of Jesus to manifest his kingdom in that sphere. And so again, that might be small or it might be large. And so it looks different for different people. But you know, one of one of the um, questions that I that I wrestle with, and uh, I, you mentioned it earlier, where someone asked, um, you know, what, what does it look like for me to be involved in this space without being involved in politics? Um, and 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 here's sort of the difficulty um, in that, and, and try and interact with that, and without blabbering and confusing myself and everybody else who's listening. But I think the difficulty is that. Because there's no formula, the only real way to figure it out is to get involved and ask the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom every step of the way. Like, just get involved, you know, get involved in something. You don't have to change. You don't have to save the world, but just immerse yourself in something. Immerse your voice, your life in the proclamation of, of justice in some capacity. And then step by step, just see, you know, be in tune with the Holy Spirit, be in tune with his word. And, and navigate those waters as best as possible. And it's essentially the way that I reckon um, a lot of the pioneers in the Adventist church did it because, for example, when you read uh, Desire of Ages, right? And for those of you who, who aren't Adventists, Desire of Ages is a classic Adventist book written by one of our co-founders, Ellen White. And she has this interesting statement in the book where she says that Jesus didn't involve himself in any civil reforms, right? Um, he, he, he knew that he had three years to accomplish his mission and that was his focus. So he didn't involve himself in any civil reforms. 
And what I've seen is I've seen people take that quote and say, aha, <laughs> you know, uh, at least within the Adventist community, like, aha, we should not be involved in anything civil whatsoever. Um, but when they do that, they, they, they ignore the broader picture in Ellen White's life. Now, Ellen White always advocated that we should be really careful about getting chin deep into politics. And, and, and what she meant by that was, and you can even read this in Desire of Ages, the context of that particular statement, what she's talking about is when the church gets to the point where it gets in bed with politicians because it wants some kind of legislation to come out of the relationship. And it's pretty dangerous at that point. But that doesn't mean that she was completely, she was advocating a complete withdrawal from the civil world. And here's where the messiness comes in. And here's where people get so annoyed with me because I love messiness, bro. I don't like formulas. I love messiness. I love looking people in the eye and saying, I don't know. It's messy. Get in there and trust the Holy Spirit to let you, you know, help you figure it out. And, and let's be in connection and conversation throughout the whole journey. But for example, in the in the life of, of, of Ellen White, we see that she was a very strong advocate of temperance movement. Uh, now, for those who are unfamiliar, what was the temperance movement? The temperance movement was a movement, very strong movement in Ellen White's day that sought to make alcohol illegal, basically. Now, a lot of people think that the reason why these people did that is because they're just a bunch of fundamentalists who read in a Bible verse that said alcohol bad, and they decided, let's make this a law, right? But when you read the, the, the writings of Ellen White, where she talks about her logic behind being involved in the temperance movement, it had nothing to do with, there's a Bible verse that said alcohol bad, so let's make it illegal for everyone right? Let's just be a bunch of party poopers for all the spring break kids, right? Um, that, that wasn't the idea. The idea was that alcohol had an adverse effect on poor communities. And that when alcohol entered a poor community, the person distributing the alcohol got wealthy and the poor community suffered devastating results that would take generations to recover from. Yeah. Spousal abuse, child abuse, economic disparity because of the effects of alcohol. And so they were seeking to fight this on behalf of these communities that were being disproportionately affected by alcohol. And, and because th this is the thing, this is the, the, the trend of empire from, from, from you know, the Babylonians till today is empire is always built. Its wealth and its power is always built on the voiceless and the vulnerable. And so they were protesting this idea, right? Now, the temperance movement was deeply political, mm -hmm. right? It was, it was involved in, the, in reforming legislation, right? It was a deeply political movement. Um, and so here we see a balance, right? Here we see a balance between, you know, we, we shouldn't get chin deep into politics and be in bed with politicians and, and all that. But at the same time, we can't be silent, especially when we're in a position where we're able to influence the world for some good. Because if we can limit the influence of alcohol on these communities, then it enables the kingdom of God to be built because people can hear the gospel better when they're not drunk, right? So <laughs> this is the idea behind it. Now, here's the counterbalance to that, right? Here's the counterbalance to that. And, and I encourage young people Adventists, Christians, whatever, I encourage each of us to be involved. Where, where I pull back is this, where I pull back is 
don't expect, and, and Martin Luther King had, you know, was the same. He's like, don't expect legislation to fix this world. Yeah. <laughs> right. It, 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 you know, praise God, it stops me from being lynched, right? At, le- at least it makes that illegal, right? <laughs> but if, but obviously the gospel is the only thing that can change men's hearts, right? And and he, the, the temperance movement is a perfect example of this, right? Because the temperance movement was noble and had a noble aim, right? It was, it was, it was a social justice movement. They were trying to limit the influence of these companies on poor communities so that the kingdom of God could be spread and, 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 you know, suffering could be abated. But what happened when the temperance movement actually got its way and temperance became part of American law? Well, the mafia, (laughs) I'm I'm from New Jersey, bro. I have to bring up the mafia. The mafia, the mafia filled the vacuum. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the mafia went from being a powerful organization and it is not a monolithic organization. They have different, you know, New York, Chicago, they had different ones. But it went from being powerful organization to a super powerful organization because prohibition then gave way to bootlegging, mm. which gave the mafia wealth beyond its wildest dreams. Yeah. And through that wealth, it was able to corrupt politicians and buy police departments and you know all kinds of stuff. And so, what do you see here? You see, the the legislation came in. But rather than a just and beautiful society manifesting as a result, evil just found another way, right? And so this is what I say to people, like, be involved, right? Raise your voice. If you, if you got to get involved in civic stuff, pray to God for, for guidance and wisdom on the parameters because every situation is different. There's no formula for all of it. Be involved. Raise your voice. Fight for change. But always remember at the same time, that's the paradox, that it, ultimate transformation, atonement will take place at the second coming. And so as we involve ourselves in social change, we have to preach the gospel mm-hmm. because the gospel is it. One final example, and then I'll turn it over to you. Um, one of my churches meets at the Salvation Army uh, here in here. In mm-hmm. uh, we meet at the Salvation Army building up in Jundalup. Mm-hmm. And uh, wonderful people, I've met their pastor. And um, she came over one Sabbath um, and we were having a chat during lunch. And I asked her, because I, I had never been to the Salvation Army Church there. I got two other churches, so, you know, I would love to, but I, I don't have the time. So I asked her, I was like, oh, so, you know, what's it like for you guys on Sunday? Like, how many people do you have coming? And I expected her to say, oh, you know, uh, 200, you know, the building fits probably 200 people. And she was like, oh, we have a, a small group smaller than yours. And I was like, wait a minute. I only got 50 people up here. What do you mean smaller than mine? And I, I can't remember exactly, but it was something somewhere between 10 and 15 people. And I remember sitting there and thinking to myself, I didn't ask it because I, I didn't know if it would come across as offensive. But I remember thinking to myself, like, you're the Salvation Army. Everybody loves the Salvation Army. How do you only have 10 people at your church? Like, you guys should be bursting at the seams. You're so involved in the local space. You're so involved in alleviating suffering. Like, how could you not be like massive so anyways i didn't ask because i I thought that might be a bit offensive so i just let it go but then i think it was that very same week i spoke to our conference president here in wa who had recently been to a big gathering of all the salvation army leaders in australia Mm -hmm. and the general who's in charge of the whole region told them that um they were experiencing a crisis in their churches their churches weren't growing in fact they were shrinking Mm -hmm. and after lots of study and prayer they realized the problem was they, in all the years, 
of serving others, serving communities, serving the poor, serving the needy, they had never engineered or, or nurtured a connection between service and the gospel. And so people were being served, but there, they, there was no connection from that service to the gospel. So it wasn't transferring to kingdom growth, you know. Um, now, I know some people can say, hey, does kingdom growth equate to church growth? That's a separate conversation. But this is how they framed it, right? Their churches were dwindling. They're like, it's not transferring to, to discipleship and kingdom growth. And I realized at that moment, you know, our, our, our humanitarian social action must always be connected to the gospel. That's our framework. That's our lens. That's, that's the, the substructure that undergirds what social justice means for us. And so my advice to everyone would be, I know it's a super messy conversation and I wish I had a formula for you, but get involved. But always remember, if we solved every single problem in the world tonight, by 12 noon tomorrow, we'd have a million new ones, right? Yeah. We've got to preach the gospel. We got yeah. the kingdom, man, the kingdom. That's what it's all about. We've got to preach the kingdom. Yeah. And, and, you know, we have to preach the gospel and we have to be involved in social things because in many, many ways, you can't preach the gospel effectively in the midst of injustice. You know, one, one example that I saw from that conversation on Arise was what happens when the Adventist church, if the Adventist church doesn't speak against slavery, and it goes into the South and it goes into other countries in the world where there is slavery and it proclaims its message and the slaves want to be a part of the church and they, and they want to embrace the message. But guess what? They're slaves. They can't keep the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. Right. Like at some point as a movement, we have to say, no, we have to fight for their religious liberty, which is a humanitarian issue, by the way. And this is a big part of Adventist history is religious liberty. Right. And religious liberty, mind you, is not Adventist liberty. It's religious liberty, right? For all, this is a humanitarian issue, right? The Adventist concept of education, yeah. um, the health message, you know, all of this stuff is, is essentially a cry for justice and equity. Even, I'm going to say something that's unpopular, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> um, and then I really will hand it over. Um, even today, like... A lot of us look at Ellen White's thoughts on jewelry and we're like, oh, that seems a bit far-fetched. Mm -hmm. um, and I get it. it. You know, you read it and you're like, oh, that seems a bit far-fetched. Um, but what's interesting is when you, when you read what she has to say holistically, it, it makes a little bit more sense because in, in her day, there was this social convention, right? This patriarchal social convention that women were only supposed to have babies, make food, and look pretty. Right. And in a, in, a, in a sense, one of the ways in which you kept them shackled in this idea, in this in this um, low expectation of their existential significance was you give them pretty things. Right. Women just like pretty things, give them pretty shiny things and they'll be happy. And 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 in a sense, when people like Ellen, she wasn't the only one when they protested, when they when they were speaking against jewelry. What they were actually doing, what, what she wanted was women to adorn themselves with political intelligence, with religious intelligence, with existential significance, right? Now, how you apply that to today, I think is a separate conversation, but you can understand the logic, right? You can see like, even in this thing that many of us are like, oh, that seems a bit far-fetched and outlandish, there is a protest to the patriarchal substandard expectations that were placed on womanhood. 
where, where you have this lady saying, I want you as women to train yourselves and adorn yourselves in practical, world-changing, existentially valuable skills, you know? And, and even in that, there is this, there is a protest, right? There's a sense in which she's going against the grain and saying, no, actually, we're very intelligent and we have a lot to offer the world, you know? So this is, this is a sense in which, you know, we, 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 our voice has to be oppositional to the currents of the day, right? To the sexism, to the, to the, to the racism, to all of the different isms that empire lays at our feet. We must oppose these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, just to bring it back to a, sort of a simple, basic idea, my encouragement would be, um, you know, immerse yourself and your voice in issues of justice, mm-hmm. but never forget to preach the gospel, because that's what it's all about. That's ultimately going to be the restoration of the, of the universe. So I hope that helps. I don't know if that helps or not. All right, guys, I hope that that was uh, really insightful and inspiring for you guys today. Um, I encourage you to check out Eddie Hippolyte on uh, social media as well. Uh, You can look him up on Instagram, on Facebook, on YouTube, ton of sermons that you can find of Eddie's. He's a brilliant guy. You can look him up on Amazon. He is the author uh, of a book. I believe it's called Living From Here. Uh, Check that out as well. Uh, But that's it for today, guys. I hope you have an amazing week. And don't forget to continue to redesign Adventism for mission. Take care and God bless.